We appreciate your volunteering. You're a very good observer, Cole. Thank you. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. We want tough-minded people. Strong, mentally. We've had some misfortunes with unstable types. For a man in your position, an opportunity not to volunteer could be a real mistake. Definitely a mistake. Cast and the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine and I love movies, which is lucky because each episode I'm joined by guests to talk about a movie they love and see where the conversation takes us from there. Whether you're a regular listener or just a promoter for this episode, welcome to the show and thank you for giving us a listen. I hope you enjoyed the film talk and, as always, and if you feel like doing so, you can keep the conversation going in the comments on our socials, in the Am Not Facebook group or wherever you see this episode posted. As we're still in the early episodes of 2024, I'm going to do a shout out at the top of the episode to say that if you enjoy the show and would like to support it, you can do so by liking and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd be grateful of a rating or review if you have a second or two to spare. Thank you. This podcast is 100% free to listen to and always will be. I don't have a Patreon, I don't put ads in the pod, and I'll never ask you for money. So any support that you can offer in spreading the word is huge and gratefully received. Thank you. As it's February, we're using the month to celebrate the Time Loop movie, and we're bringing it to a close as Ross Beamish returns to the pod to get all Gilliam-esque, and we take a look at the 1995 Willis Stowe Pitt sci-fire, 12 Monkeys. One quick thing before we start, I say in the episode that I couldn't find a Barry Norman review, which at the time of recording was true. But as is the way with these things, I then found one whilst looking for his thoughts on another film. Rather than drop it into the episode awkwardly, I'll put the episode of Film 96 in the bonus features section on the episode page on the website, uh, hauntednerds.com. And now, with an advanced warning on spoilers and all that introduction stuff out of the way, let's roll the trailer and head into the time loop vortex. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. Crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. 
I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. Please! I can help you. Get you out. Monkeys. The thing mutates. We live underground. They're watching you. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. Hello, Ross. How are you? Monkeys. We're all monkeys. Hey, I'm good. All right? Yes. Yeah. Ticking on. Thank you. Um, yeah. Nothing much exciting going on. Been stuck in this time loop for a month. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got a cracking film to talk about. That's... Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of ending on a slightly different time loop movie. We'll get into it as we discuss the film. But it's not in your Groundhog Day, Happy Death Day, Palm Springs kind of time loop movie. It's more... A, one linear day kind of thing, but we'll get into that. Um, so yeah, so we're talking about 12 Monkeys. So a little bit of information about the film. So directed by Terry Gilliam, written by David and Janet Peoples, inspired by the film Legetti by Chris Marker, uh, written by Chris Marker, uh, starring Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, and Christopher Plummer. And just a couple of fun extra ones, uh, Simon Jones, Frank Gorshin, the Riddler himself, David Morse, Matt Ross, who directed Captain Fantastic, which we did an episode on, so I thought I'd shout that one out. Uh, future Law and Order SVU star Christopher Maloney, and an uncredited cameo by Donald Faison, although I couldn't spot him. Mm. But according to IMDb, he's in there. Uh, released in cinemas on the 5th of January 1996, after a limited release on the 20th, uh, 27th of December 1995 in the US, and on the 19th of April 1996 in the UK. So we're back in 1996. You knew it was bound to be. This the is 1996 the, trilogy is done. It's the it's the perfect analogy of this being stuck in a time loop, grand old day style thing. And I tell you what, I don't want to leave. I'm quite happy here. So, like, like Cole, you want to be in 1996. That's right. <laughs> uh, grossed 168839456 worldwide on an estimated budget of 29 million, according to IMDb. So it brought in a huge chunk of money especially for a terry gilliam film yeah um again we'll get into a bit more of that in a bit roger ebert gave the film three stars out of four saying i've seen 12 monkeys described as a comedy any last that it inspires will be very hollow it's more of a celebration of madness and doom with a hero who tries to prevail against the chaos of his condition and is inadequate this vision is a cold dark damp one and even the romance between willis and stowe feels desperate rather than joyous all of this is done very well, and the more you know about movies, especially the technical side, the more you will likely yeah, the more you're likely to admire it. But a comedy it is not, and as an entertainment, it appeals more to the mind than to the senses. Um, I couldn't find a Barry Norman review, but in his review for Empire Magazine, Kim Newman gave the film sty- uh, five stars out of five, saying, "Though initially disorientating, Twelve Monkeys really get it, gets it together at the halfway point and becomes masterly, transcending its apocalyptic apocalypse nuttery." with a last-minute realisation cued by an all-night Hitchcock festival of what perception might be for. 
So yeah, I think it was generally well received, certainly by critics. I think there were some that weren't fans, but you get that with any movie. Um, but yeah, so what are your memories of first seeing it or hearing about it? Well, before I say that, I'd just say I'm really glad that for the first time, I think I'm in large agreement with those critics there <laughs> with what they had to say. Because uh, normally, especially on the Alien 3 thing with uh, Kim Newman, we were we were poles apart. Um, but I mean, weird, weird flex for uh, Ebert to come in and start trying to throw the comedy angle at it. I actually think there's some really, really funny lines in in this film. And I've picked out a, a couple um, that I just think were masterfully delivered. But it's not a comedy. It's a brilliant, brilliant sci-fi. And um, so I first saw it when I was about 14 or 15-ish. Difficult to tell, really. But this was a classic one at Uncle Murray's. So he would um, go and rent a VHS on a Saturday. And he'd say, come around. And basically, we'd just have a little kind of like movie screening club, just he and I. Um, and it was movies like this. And I remember from Dust Till Dawn, I watched with him. So fairly esoteric style movies but um that was what we did and um i really didn't know uh what to expect from it to be honest with you i don't know if you did 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 from the promos or trailers or anything that you saw no i think i might be misremembering but empire the first magazine of the new year used to give you give away a vhs with trailers for upcoming films on it all right i've got a feeling the 12 monkeys trailer was on that um, but I remember seeing it actually in Empire Magazine first time. It was Bruce Willis in the big plastic condom, yeah. collecting specimens from the deserted city was the big picture in the review. Um, and that sort of captured my imagination because I was just getting into more, for want of a better term, more indie arty films rather than mainstream. I know this is a mainstream film, it's universal. It's got at least two A-list actors. Madeline Stowe was pretty big at the time as well. Um but yeah, I was getting into more in, more interesting films, let's say, rather than just your, you know, mainstream blockbuster comedy yeah. kind of stuff. Not sure. that there's anything wrong with the popcorn movies either. Um, yeah, I got it on video. I missed it at the cinema. I had to wait for it to come out on video and I bought it. It was Polygram released it in the UK. Yeah. I always remember that and, it, you know, being the same people that released Trainspot in. So I assume that was a sign of excellence. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then I watched it, and I liked it, but I didn't appreciate it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I didn't watch it again until I bought it on DVD back in the early days of DVD, partly because it was one of the few DVDs that actually had a bonus feature on it. Was the DVD the one that I'd sent you that picture of, that really funny, neat-looking, jewel-case style? It was that repackaged Yeah. Um, into a... Because those jewel cases didn't last very long. I've still got a couple of films in the jewel case, but... I love those cases. Those are the Warner Brothers cardboard snap cases. They stuck out on the shelf and it really bugged me, but at the same time... Oh, no, that looked looked primo. But yeah, like I say, it was one of the few that actually had the bonus features on it. That was part of the reason I bought it and went back into it, because I remember quite liking the film, but it sort of faded in memory a little bit. And then I watched it today for this, which is the third time I've watched it. (laughs) Because it's one of those films that I really like it, but it's feels so bleak at times that I never really feel like I'm going to pop on 12 monkeys and have a giggle. I've got a reference to that in a bit. We'll come to that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've, an analogy of another film that I absolutely adore, but I have to be emotionally sound to be able to watch yeah. it, just to be able to take it on. I'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah. Cause I mean, jumping ahead slightly, I think this film might have the saddest ending. 
Yeah, but it's there is a little bit there is a little bit of hope in there. Again, I've got some things to say about um the the brilliance of this film, in my opinion, with yeah. the, the mixture of tonality in it. Um, but for me, I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect. It was Uncle Murray's choice on a Saturday. I think the week before we'd watched From Dust Till Dawn, and that obviously turned on a dime. So I was kind of like, hmm, wonder what he's picked for us this time. And uh, obviously I knew Bruce Willis from Die Hard. Um, by that point, Die Hard and Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3? When, when did Die Hard 3 come out? 95, so yeah, the year oh. before this. So it wouldn't have been, uh, you'd have had to have seen it in the cinema. I think I was too young to see it in the cinema at that point. But definitely those two, the first two would have been in, on the uh, on broadcast TV. And um, and then a Pulp Fiction by that point. I was, yeah. I think I'd, I'd snuck a watch of Pulp Fiction by that point. So I'd seen him in that. And then, of course, Brad Pitt was just beginning to take off at that point as well. Um, and in fact, I think from what I can remember of the marketing, it really positioned him as being probably the central character with the amount of screen time he had with with Bruce Willis just being more not supporting but Brad Pitt was definitely front and center of the trailers maybe I'm misremembering but I seem to remember that no I think you're right I think the market so I think seven came out just before this certainly in the UK and then I think maybe a month later we got this so we were just hitting that cusp of the Brad Pitt flying into the stratosphere yeah and being um, a megastar if I can, uh, do you mind if I do some spoilers at this point? No, no, carry on. Difficult, difficult to talk about, especially Brad Pitt's character without spoiling it. Um, so the marketing really lead into him being this main star, but um, definitely with a hint of, is he an antagonist? Because he's certainly a weirdo. And of course, it's all misdirection, um, which is a key part of the plot. Um, I've got to tell you that, I mean, I'll come back to this at the end when we do our final thoughts, but um, I was properly blown away um, after watching it. Um, it's one of those kind of alluding back to what we mentioned a minute or two ago. It's one of those I'm going to have to take a little quiet little think about this for, for about a week. Uh, um, it's just one of those experiences where little bits are replaying in your head and the emotions you feel as you go. Um and it's a bit like to me. It's a, the film I was referencing earlier uh, was There Will Be Blood. Yeah, where I came out of the cinema from watching that. I think I was on my own when I watched that, and I immediately thought I've got to get this on Blu-ray and and what have you. And I, got, I think I got it on DVD and Blu-ray, and then it just sat on my shelf for about six months before I I basically drummed up the courage to go and watch it again because I just knew it was such an investment of of just like cerebral energy and emotion to watch this. And I felt the same way about 12 Monkeys, but not in a bad way. That's just because I just think that there's such epic examples of the art form. Yeah, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a film that sits with you rather than needs to be rewatched. I've got the exact same thing with There Will Be Blood. I bought the DVD and it's just sat on my shelf. I ended up catching it when it showed on Channel 4, mm -hmm. which would have been, what, two, three years after it was in the cinema? Yeah. Sometimes with was... those kind of films, it's like you've got to be forced to watch them in the sense that because it's on broadcast TV, you can't avoid it. It's yeah. on. It's there. Um, and I just can't really put into words the effect that it had, but it because it, it, it is quite a profound effect. Um, and that's odd for me to not be able to put things into words. But uh, um, I remember just really having a, a, it's a new experience. 
Yeah. It's not exactly like staring into the face of God kind of experience, but it's an experience where you go, oh, I didn't, I've never felt that before. It's that's odd. That's interesting. Um, it's both good and it's bad at the same time. Yeah. I find with particularly Terry, some Terry Gilliam films that I'll sit there and watch them and be kind of like, am I supposed to like this? Yeah. I really sort of wrestle with it. And I did with this film. Like I say, I was slightly too young to appreciate it. I think the more, a bit like Roger Ebert said about the more films you've seen and the more you have with the technical know-how kind of thing of films, the more you appreciate that stuff. And I think it does appeal on that sense. A bit like Brazil as well. I love Brazil, but Brazil also appeals more to me on a visual imaginations front than necessarily the story side. Yeah, And I feel that a little bit with this one is I'm taking everything else in. And that's not to say anything against the plot, because I think it's got a great plot. I really do like the film. Outstanding plot. But that's kind of the Gilliam thing. It's a bit like a Tim Burton thing or something like that. You're so taken in with what you're watching that you're not necessarily taking it all in kind of thing. I think this one... Sense. I, I do see this, say this towards the end in, in my reflection, but it's... Um, to me, this is... This is this is pure Gilliam or touristic vision, but it's his most accessible. Um, something like Brazil is just just outstanding to look at, and it's weird and it's peculiar and it's unpleasant, but it's also just you want to go back and watch it three years after having watched it, just because you feel like maybe emotionally or or film knowledge wise you've you've developed a bit more this film doesn't require that so much i mean it is derived from this this short film Lajati, which to be honest with you um i've rediscovered 12 monkeys having um I, th- I watched it with my uncle like i said and then i bought it on vhs and then i didn't watch it again for many many years uh, but i rediscovered it at film school when we were screened Lajati, as you've mentioned before and i think um you said you were going to put a link to it in the um, description? or the Yeah, it's or... it's up on YouTube at the time of recording. If it's still up on YouTube, I'll post a link to it in the and bonus really... features section on the website. If any of the people listening to this haven't seen it, please just do go and watch it. Um, I hope after my Alien 3 recommendation and begging you guys to go and watch it, you'll, you'll take heed of my recommendations. But this is, this is a truly exceptional... Uh, short film it's actually on the short film oh sorry on the film studies course i teach ray level it's one of the prescribed short films from the exam board and um it's if you don't know about it it's it's a short film that is told almost entirely in still photos black and white photos uh with the use of overlaid um sound music and very haunting sort of music actually but also uh sound effects and uh and narration and uh, it's a little bit like where people say they watch a great black and white film and then after about 20 minutes they forget it's black and white they can almost see the colors in this one it's extraordinary in the fact that you will snap out of it and realize that you are watching a film made of still images and will swear blind that you saw them moving because it's just so brilliantly edited and the sound sound uh, design does such heavy lifting in it um, and I really do believe that Gilliam really does do a great homage of this film. Um, but he still totally makes it his own film. 
Um, and to me, that it really leans into this whole idea of is he an author or not? I think that he can take something of someone else's and redefine it as his own. A little bit like Tarantino, arguably. Um, but it, it truly was. Um, this is a great movie. I'm kind of doing the summary of it before we even <laughs> talked about the screening of it. But um, I was so glad when I kind of. When we were talking about Alien 3, I said about some of the shots in there, I said, this is so 12 months monkeys asking. I was hoping to plant the seed in your head that we could um, we could talk about this one because I, it's not like I'm a massive Gideon fanboy, but this is a great movie. Yeah. See, I, I like a lot of Gilliam stuff. Um, interestingly, with this one, I think it's almost going to sound horrible to say because I hate the phrase, but this is almost like full terror and these are going to sound like two massively opposing forces slammed together but it's like gilliam on full gilliam but grounded in reality but definitely it's got that brilliant mixture between as you said it's a mainstream film it's got mega movie stars and growing stars and everything but it's also directed by this really altruistic left field esoteric director yeah, because um, like I say, it, you look at Brazil, which is possibly the closest of his films to this film. Yeah, and I know it's it's an unofficial trilogy of this, um, Brazil, this, and oh, I can't remember the name of the one that came out in twenty seventeen ish. I think it was, or might have been earlier, twenty thirteen. Um, had Christoph Waltz in it, gone from my head. Um, but yeah, so those are sort of his dystopian future trilogy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I think this, because I watched Brazil again last night ahead of watching this, because I knew it would probably come up, yeah. just because of how, I mean, this is like the bleaker Brazil, but not, because I think the thing with this is I think it has a reputation for having an impenetrable plot. No. It doesn't. If, if you watch I mean... it and you pay attention, but it's, I think that to some degree puts people off, and I think those people then aren't rewarded because I think this is a film that rewards you with repeat viewing. Yeah, I mean, I, when I say no, I don't mean that it it doesn't have its challenges, but I, I think it's a very cop-out thing to say that it's impenetrable. Pay attention to it, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I got it on my first screening when I was 14. You know, well, was... I did, because I thought I wasn't going to be able to understand it because a girl I was at sixth form with, really smart girl, but she was like, I didn't understand it at all. And I was like, shit, if she doesn't get it, I'm a dumbass like me. For anyone listening to this who hasn't seen it, can I give one suggestion about the way to approach watching it? Yeah, you can you can plug in and try and tie up all the, the logic on it. But I talk about this later about it being not a scientific experience of time travel. It's a human experience of time travel. And actually, that's where watching Ledger T comes in quite ha- helpfully, because although I watched Ledger T after... Um, it's about having people who can time travel in Leger T are the ones that have um, a, the emotional grounding in order to have the, the state of mind where they can yeah. hold themselves in a certain time. Um, and it, although that's not really mentioned in this film, it's kind of alluded to in the sense that, that Cole is actually a very strong um, mentally sound character which is odd because, of course, the first time he time travels, he's thrown into a mental institution. Um, but if you kind of go at it at a, a human experience of what it would be like to be someone who was displaced from time, 
I think it's a lot more accessible, actually. Yeah. If you're looking at it like empathetically, if you're watching this film as as a as a human rather than someone trying to, to set the plot, which in my opinion is actually perfectly sound anyway. It's just a cyclical time narrative, which yeah. I think is beautifully poetic. Um, but yeah, watch it just on like a human to human level, and I think you'd probably get more from it. Yeah, I'd argue as well, don't try and take everything in on that first viewing. It rewards repeat viewing. Mm-hmm. And you brought it up. Obviously, this is Time Loop Month. We've done Groundhog Day, Palm Springs, Happy Death Day, which are all very similar in their approach to Time Loop. This one is also a Time Loop movie, and it plays in the same way that those films do it, in that it lays little bits in for you to look out for and yeah. feeds the pieces together. Like the message they play at the beginning, that it turns out it was Madeline Stowe. Yeah, leaving it at the end, and all those little bits fall in, and he thinks he saw Brad Pitt in the airport, and it wasn't. It was David Morse, and it all. What I mentioned in in some of my notes is about the quality of the writing in this, and this is really, really. I wish I could write this well, um, because for the last twenty years I've been trying to write like some kind of time travel film, Um, but this gives you enough clues as you go on to keep you interested but at the same time it plays on a great sense of dramatic irony where you know more than um the some of the key characters do yeah including the you know the doctor who cole falls in love with um we know that he is genuinely a time traveler and then she discovers along the way with certain clues for, for example the boy down the well um and it's just there's little bits that are peppered in 10, 20, 30 minutes before, just little throwaway lines, which are just wonderful. Yeah. Um, and again, that ties into repeat viewing as well. And that's a mark of a great film. If you go back and you can watch a film another two, three, four, five times and still get something from it that's new and original, then you're watching a good movie. Yeah. Um, Terry Gilliam in his book, Gilliam Esque, which I highly recommend people get. I'll put it in the show notes if it's still available. Beautiful cover. That is a look at that. Um, but he says in that that he felt like a tremendous obligation to do 12 Monkeys right because he was such a fan of the script and thought it was such a good script. And it is. And with Cole, we know that he is a time traveller, but he's also has a certain unreliability about him. Yeah. Like you've got an unreliable narrator kind of thing. So you do sometimes doubt him, especially when he starts to doubt himself. Yeah. Um, I find it that it's a man driven to insanity to appear sane and then she sort of you know has to convince he spends the first part of the film trying to convince her that he's sane yeah and then she spends the second part of the film trying to convince him that he is but credit to the writing and to the acting and to the directing here none of that feels oh, false. i, I feels think like this is the, yeah. arguably the best bruce willis performance mm. yeah you um, like genuinely feel for him even in the small moments, like when he first, when he hears music, when he hears I Find My Heart on Blueberry Hill. Yeah. And then he puts his head out the window and he's breathing in the air and you just feel that joy of like, because he's essentially a child who had his innocence taken from him because he witnessed himself be murdered in front of him. Yeah. Which I think is one of the things people always struggled with, a bit like John Travolta being dead in Pulp Fiction and then back alive again because they didn't understand that it was narratively jumping all over the place. Same girl. <laughs> well, she needed a film lesson from uh, Mr. Beamish, and she well, got it straight away. <laughs> it was the 90s. We're innocent then. This is a personal message to you. Are you at the end of your rope? 
Are you dying to get away? The Florida Keys are waiting for you. Ocean waves. I've never seen the ocean. It's an advertisement, Mr. Cole. What? It's an advertisement. You do understand that, don't you? It's not really a special message to you. Mr. Cole. You used to call me James. You prefer that? James, uh, you don't really have a gun. Oh, yeah. turn, can you turn this up? Can you make this louder? jump into the um more chronological yeah yeah we can do i mean it's sort of fitting to jump all over the place but yeah no i do i mean a lot of my notes and sort of just random things i picked up at the time i like i mean a lot about the visuals of the film i love that dystopian grunge mixed with shiny sci-fi in certain bits like when he goes into that tunnel to go above ground yeah that's all shiny and sci-fi-y so to me, that what you've just said there is is just exemplified beautifully by the, just the opening where we've got the five billion people will die from a deadly virus in 1997 appearing on the screen, black screen, um, green CRT typeface. Um, it's just like something from Alien. Um, and that, that kind of howling wind in the background is so ominous. It's fantastic. I mean, at that point, it had my curiosity. And then it comes up in a different typeface with excerpts from an interview with clinically diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic you had my curiosity before now you've got my yeah. attention you know <laughs> that is just brilliant um and then just what opening titles as well it's like with that music going do 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 with the monkeys swirling yeah. and then the names coming across the screen out of focus then briefly in focus and then back it's, out of focus it's like a bond opening sequence as a fever dream it's just so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and it's not super long either. It's about, th- I don't know. About well, no, it's so those three names, isn't it? And then Terry cool. Gilliam's name, the three main stars, and then the 12 monkeys thing. And then it goes into the yeah, actual so film, doesn't it? With all the off-key music and the swirling red monkeys, it's just totally crazy. Um, and then it has a total tonal shift to the actual dream you were referring to before so it's all weird and then it goes actually to a very gentle scene almost like afterlife type scene yeah. um which is obviously a flashback or a flash forward whichever way you want to kind of tie it in they're one and the same really in this film and then it's got that amazing jump cut to cole in his bunk in some weird fish eye and like i was just wrote how alien three is that where you got all those bold guys around him he's bold as well and they're just in it's like Morse and Sigourney Weaver's character yeah. just walking up and there's an alien right next to them, you know. 
Well, I like that they're all carrying in their hammocks as well. Yeah. Like trying to avoid the roll call of getting called up to be sent for the experiments or whatever. They don't fully know what it is until they get up there kind of thing. Yeah. Um because you never come it, back once you've been picked. Once 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 you got that shot, especially in light of having seen something like Brazil, I just wrote, How Gilliam is this? You know, yeah. you got weird angles, industrial hyper real sound effects it's a bit like that do you remember i said in the fincher stuff how the dialogue seems to be enhanced it's like loud yeah. whispering kind of thing it's the same thing here it's so 90s i love it i wish they'd bring that back um ominous music um the set and the costume design is like something between functional and totally nightmarish yeah you know it's it's like this this could work but it's also utterly ridiculous and just absurd and it's just the whole nine yards of gilliam uh, right there at the start um, and I said special mention to the opening credits um, you don't really see opening credits any longer do you it's just like into the film kind of thing um, where they look like captions so with key people in this film you have people like the editor the set designer the costume designer and they're all written as if they're captions as we're going through really nice shots of the dystopian yeah. uh, world so it really it's like a label of theirs on it yeah. I just really like that. It's kind of just, I just got the sense that they they really had a sense of respect for all parties who were involved, which is interesting if it's an altruistic film. But um, it really, what did you think about the 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 first time you saw the the world, the future world outside, upstairs? Um, I honestly can't remember like the first time I saw it. Um, mm-hmm. This time, I mean, it's still incredibly striking. It's kind of what I Am Legend should have been oh, man. when I was watching it today. I, I literally thought the same. So I was like, I wish this is what I Am Legend looked like rather than, you know, nothing against that film. It made its choice. And I suppose it possibly didn't want to look like 12 Monkeys either. But um, yeah, I love that. I love like the bear when he sees the bear and the lion up on the building. I love how that plays back later when it's the stuffed bear in the shop window and the stone lion up on the thing. And you start to think it starts to lay those groundworks again of like, was this all in his head all along? Because it wouldn't be the first time we've had a rug pull like that in a movie. Yeah. But yeah, so aesthetically, it's just so cold and desolate. Yeah. I know it's supposed to be winter. Of course it is. It's, It's not like there's a nuclear winter. It was obviously a virus that wiped everyone out. But I just thought it's such a great depiction of what a post-apocalyptic world would really look like. Um, really oh, when he is... goes into the department store and it's still playing the Christmas song. Yeah. Whether it's actually playing it in there or whether it's just a haunting piece of music on the soundtrack. Yeah. There's there's a bit, obviously, a bit later when he goes back. Do you remember? I think, it is it when they go to get their their clothes? Yeah. The, their, and, After and then... he's cut his teeth out. Yeah, old man. And then, yeah. And then he, the camera does this kind of track and pan and looking upwards. And it, it has, it's him in the same space, but obviously what he experienced when he first went above ground yeah. and where the, where the birds flutter over the, and it goes cold blue and there's the hole in the roof and everything. And it just, it just beautifully cross dissolves from one, from the, if we call the present time the 1990, is it 96 they're supposed to 96 be in? 96 they're in, yeah. yeah. So we call that the present and the future where he came from, where it just cross-dissolves from the fu- uh, from the present into the future. 
Uh, and again, just ties into that. Is this the real life? Yeah, because I love the shot of him looking at the row of Hawaiian shirts. Because yeah. obviously they were still there when he was, which is weird. It's Christmas time, but there's a whole row of Hawaiian shirts there. Yeah. It's yeah. um because again, like Brazil, set at Christmas. But <laughs> uh, yeah, and he gets a serious scrub down when he gets back in. Yeah, um, and I quite like that. That's then juxtaposed slightly later with when he's put into the mental institution, literally, and the scrub down he gets there. And I love how like more dystopian the nineteen ninety police station and asylum look to the point where you kind of like actually I quite like a cozy hammock in a cage compared to this. To be honest, it literally, literally won't surprise you that I wrote nice shot of comparison where Cole is being scrubbed down in the asylum exactly as he was in the future. It really le- leans into the whole tragedy of his character. Like he just cannot escape it. He can go to the past. Yeah. He can go to the future. He's always getting scrubbed down. You know, um, I actually think this, this whole story is actually really Shakespearean. Um, especially with the introduction of Pitt's character, uh, which we can talk about in a second. But before we do, um, I I just wanted to make mention, because it does come into play throughout the film, but also almost in in the penultimate shot, I think it is. Um, The board of scientists is just so Gilliam. Yeah. You know, like how in in our time, the, the scientists seem quite normal as far as, psychiatrists or so or whatever go doctors go but the ones in the future are just like it's not just how they look but it's like how they speak it's like they're robots and they're they're like trying to mimic humans like they've got they're a facade it's almost like an ai is trying to reproduce what human scientist or or whatever would be um and that's it because it's that weird thing where they make him sit in the chair and then it flies up and then he talks to them through that ball of screens yeah, it's so like steampunk versus cyberpunk, just all all combined together. It's just so Gilliam. And it's, it's one of those things I can imagine a studio exec going, "Do you need this? Why can't he just sit on yeah. a chair in front of them?" Because because Terry Gilliam said, and he went, "Right, fine, yeah, you got it." It's because it had looked the same as when he sat in front of the Riddler and his board with Madeline Stowe on it later on. Yeah, so he wanted to make it different that way, um, and make it visually interesting. But talking about um, Madeline Stowe, um, when there's a real hard cut that goes between when he's in front of those guys with the ball, uh, with all the screens on it in front of his face, and then it hard cuts to Madeline Stowe's character. Um, But it just seamlessly links between um, Cole's world to our world in the present, you know, his in the future to us. It cuts to that woman doing the presentation in front of the painting, doesn't it, talking about it? Precisely. And it's exactly like what I think Gillian was trying to tell us, like Cole would have experienced in time travel, because one minute he's here, next minute he's there, and it would have been that jarring. Yeah. Um, And tonally it's different, um, and I guess narratively it's different. And I just think it's such a a brilliant piece of... um, We've got to remember, like, you know, the editor is the editor, so they'll have had their say and everything. But I just thought in terms of the script, the directing, the the editing, uh, set design, all kind of colliding and juxtaposing each other is just so clever. It's just genius editing and pacing, I, I thought, anyway. Yeah. Um, I really like as well, speaking of Madeline Stowe, when she first goes into the cage to speak to Cole, and you've got, and it comes into play a lot more later, the slight Dutch tilt. In yep. the wide shot through the cage, yep. Yep. taking it back to another 1996 film we covered. 
Um, yeah. And I like that slightly off kilter thing. He uses it a lot in the Brad Pitt scenes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and talking of him being in the cage, I thought, and please disagree or add to it if you think, but I thought Cole, bearing in mind, of, you've got to remember the year in which this film came out and what was in the zeitgeist of the mid-90s at that point. I thought Cole is introduced like something of a cross between Hannibal Lecter and Carl Reese, yeah. but just like crazy versions, obviously. Um, and and just going back to what you said earlier, man, Bruce Willis, such a great actor. And he, I, I don't know whether, because I was young and I was only watching the films I was at the time um, with him in it, but I just thought I get the strong sense that he was so underrated in that era of just what his acting ability was. Yeah, because uh, I think he kind of got chucked into that muscle men bracket, didn't he? With yeah, yeah, of course. Arnie and Sly and Willis were the big three, obviously the Planet Hollywood three kind of thing. And I think that sort of cemented that. And he was the wisecracking, you know, rundown cop or whatever. So this was sort of the big, arguably this is possibly closest although it's a comedy, to his character in Death Becomes Her. Yeah. I know that's yeah. an out-and-out comedy, but he's quite a pathetic guy in that. And I'm not saying he's pathetic in this, but he's got that man kind who's been like, broken by the system. Not pathetic, but a, a broken man. Kind of like a cross between that and his character in Unbreakable. Yes. In the sense that they're all tragic. And they are... Yeah, I know. I, I get where you're coming from. And I just thought, like, give him... Give him a good script and a great director, and he'll just sing. Yeah. You know, he'll he'll show you what he's got. And just thinking, what we like I've written basically as part of my closing notes is knowing what we know now. I mean, you know, age comes to all of us and everything, but it's so nice to be able to look back and and look at a great artist, great work when they were at their peak. Yeah, and it was really you've mentioned about how it it made the money it did. And it was critically, uh, uh, I don't know if acclaimed is the right word, but critically very well received. I'm really glad it was because yeah. he deserved it, you know. Yeah, like I say, I I said when I said that, it, the, you know, it's surprising for a Gilliam film because he doesn't have the greatest track record for box office. Um, outside of like Monty Python and certain other films, generally... They performed okay, but they've not been anything that set the world on fire. He's not a James Cameron or a Ridley Scott or a Tim Burton in his peak or anybody like that. Not from a revenue perspective, no, but no. from an artistic. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm talking purely what Hollywood bigwigs would look at now, which is possibly why he doesn't make many films. Yeah, which I think helps for making a Terry Gilliam film an event. Yeah, it's a bit like, well, back when people gave a damn about U2, it was a bit like a U2 album coming out. Yeah. You know, People would say, this is a big name, and it's it's a big thing. I mean, I say this just as my favourite band, Pearl Jammer, are about to release their new single for their new album, and um, following all the, the forums online and Facebook pages, everyone's going mad for it. Um, and I suppose it's a bit like that. When Gilliam makes something now, people pay attention. Um, it, it's that thing that I, I was thinking it the other day because I watched a film about a kid when Star Wars came out based on a true story kind of thing um, 52577 
um I watched that and I was kind of like, I miss those days when a film coming out felt like an event. Yeah. Like you were counting down the days to it coming out and you didn't necessarily get it at the same time everybody else got it. So you had to wait for it. You weren't, it wasn't a constant feed of. Yeah. Um, There are, I'm still, I'm still thinking that there's some of those experiences now. So I guess maybe to a lesser extent, just because I've been so, as much as I love film, I'm quite a cynic about the way that the industry's gone. But the the next June film, I'm very much looking forward to. I know I'm going to get bitten on this one, but the next Alien film, you know, Romulus? Yeah. I, I, I actually have quite a bit of interest about that, to see what's going to happen on that one. Oh, um, there's, there's films I'm looking forward to, but I don't... I mean, the whole industry, like you say, has changed. The way their market has changed. Gone are the days of getting, like, a half-hour special... Yeah. on a bank holiday or in the summer holidays for like you know all right it's a slightly different thing but for batman coming out or for robin of prince yeah. of thieves coming out for anybody who remembers yeah. that one with pierce brosnan that makes yeah. you watch back now and you're like what the shit is this yeah um i wonder if like you know everyone says that the pandemic really screwed with our sense of time and then we've got things like um you know just the incessant not even one Marvel superhero movie a month, but three. Yeah. Um, and the the ubiquitous and never-ending nature of, let's face it, really, really, really high-quality TV that's being produced over the last 10 years. Um, we just, we've got a deluge of really, well, a cross between really great quality entertainment and some really poor quality entertainment, but it's just never-ending, just being, you know, this streaming service, this streaming service, this new one's open, this... And um, the fact that we're getting a bit older as well, time passes a bit quicker for us anyway. And um, well, yeah, once you have kids, and particularly for you as well, because you're a teacher, everything runs in term times. So your oh, life man, is yeah. broken up into these chunks of time. Rather than... Yeah, and I don't know if you're the same as me, but I get to the point where, like, because I'm I'm going at like 150% of the speed I really should during term time. Uh, when it comes to time when I can drop down to about 20%, I go like, no, I can't do this. I've got to run off and do about a million other things. Um, so time goes even quicker. And it just ties into that point about to the wider kind of narrative of um, not being able to look forward to something that's three, six, nine months away or 12 yeah. months away because time is going so quick. It's like it's here and gone before you even know it. Like I can't believe um, Oppenheimer's nearly on streaming. Yeah. It seemed like yesterday it was in the cinema. It was obviously last summer. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, I mean, and Oppenheimer and Barbie are a phenomenon in this day and age of a little bit of what that used to be, but that yeah. was largely driven by being an online thing. Like I say, I, I've said it before, film programs have gone now. Even on the radio, you don't really get many film things anymore. It's all moved over to podcasts or YouTube channels. Um, so you don't get that buzz of being drip fed stuff and like you say there's so much choice now with TV fucking everything on TV seems to be a game show now of some kind yeah yeah, awesome. yeah. we had the 20 years of reality TV and now it's coming back as if it's a new thing but yeah and it's just you... we're almost in a Gilliam S dystopian future where we're just being oh, drip God. fed force fed everything yeah. only it doesn't look as good no um talking or, of things, or it doesn't look as interesting either. <laughs> yeah talking talking of things that we don't get now 
Bearing in mind, Brad Pitt was seriously up and coming at this point, wasn't he? What did you think about Pitt's introduction as as Jeffrey Goins? Um, I really liked Pitt in this. At a certain point, I was kind of like he was channeling Beetlejuice, like Michael yeah. Keaton's Beetlejuice. Yeah. And once I got that, once that popped in my head, it kind of took me out of it a little bit. But I do get why everybody was raving about his performance to the point where it overshadowed wrongly, I think. A bit like how Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man completely overshadowed Tom Cruise's performance. Yeah. So nobody was talking about how good Tom Cruise is in that film because everybody was like, oh, no, it's the showy Dustin Hoffman one. And yeah. I'm not saying this is a showy one, but it's definitely... It's the one you'd look at as a non-film person and think, that's acting. Yeah, he's, he... he's got something to do with it, if that makes sense, whereas Bruce Willis is quiet acting. Yeah. And like I say, I think the brilliance of Bruce Willis's performance is in those small moments. Yeah, he's he's like it's when she thing. sees him pop back up and he's appeared in the line after she's spray painted on the side of the building. Yeah, um, just his disorientation and just the way he performs that no and vulnerability. Yeah, as well. I yeah. want to turn myself in, and he just starts waving his hands around. Yeah, but, and um, the scene in the Hitchcock films when they're yeah. sat in that, and you know. Very poor behaviour talking during a film. Oh, disgraceful. Let alone applying a fake moustache. Should have been arrested for that alone. <laughs> exactly. And the world don't matter. He's, he's so good in that scene. Yeah. Like, you, uh, you know, saying he remembers watching that film on TV and all that. And it all adds to that heartbreak at the end when you see him as a boy properly. Yeah. How excited he is to be at the airport, to see the planes. Yeah. Like this. I think that's partly what makes it... I'm a sucker for stuff involving kids anyway. That's partly what makes the ending so sad for me as well, is that you watch this kid's innocence get taken away from him from what should have been a joyous, exciting day. A kid who loves and just wanted to see planes sees... He doesn't know it's him, but sees himself get killed in in, a particularly bloody and nasty way. I wondered... Because part of the thematic point of this film is that um, Bruce Willis, his character, uh, says it himself that it actually in relation to that that film um, that the film always stays the same, but we are the ones who change. Yeah, um, and so it seems different every time we see it, um, which basically means that it's a bit like the Terminator Two thing that for his um, the future has already been written uh, or whatever. Um, and I wonder if some of those small ripples of change did change the future because it's implied at the end maybe it, maybe it is um, maybe we mentioned a bit about you know some of the small subtle changes that could have occurred um, but for example you know when I love that bit when the, the, the stupid security guy is like oh yeah it's a biohazard tube just open it up in front of me man and he's like, even the even the villain's like, are you sure about this? Because this is not good. He's like, yeah, just do it. Goes, Again, right, David cool. Morse is so good in that. His facial acting when he's like, I can infect somebody here. Yeah. Like, this guy's asking to be infected. Yeah. And he's, he wafts it under his nose and goes, it's even odorless. And he goes, yeah, that's not necessary. <laughs> and he's just there like chuckling away. And the scariest, holds up his trunks. <laughs> yeah. The scariest thing about that entire scene is not the invisible pathogen. But it's that horrible ponytail that he's got. Yeah, that's that's the end of the world right there. I was like, yeah, stop the world. I want to get off. 
Because if the, if I'm on a planet where that haircut is, I want to get out of here. <laughs> but um, David Morse plays that unsettling thing so well. Oh yeah, I'm just looking at a picture of him now on um, on my screen over here, and he has got a face that is because in Contact, I thought he was brilliantly cast in that. Yeah, um, but, you know, he did feel like genuinely very warm and like Green you know, Mile like, as well, a film we've done on this pod too. He's yeah. such a warm character in that as well as like you know stern character he's a prison guard a very warm character that you love yeah i, I mean, really like david morse again i think he's one of those character actors that's not as recognized as he possibly should be at times yeah it's a bit like I mean, he's uh, never going to be a leading man and i think he's in the right place he should be i think there's no shame in being a great character actor and excelling in small part kind of, kind of reminds me a little bit like philip seymour hoffman was yeah you know, in, in films like Magnolia and so forth, where they weren't centre, but they were centre. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they're pivotal characters. There's a great line about... Um, I was watching... Because oh, I teach Casablanca, and um, there's a great line in there about there are no small... Um, small actors in this film there's only small parts yeah. in other words every character gets an important part and they they in Casablanca it's wonderful I mean we could talk about that forever but again in this one and I love I really love David Morty's introduction because it's near the start isn't it we're at the book signing with Madeline it's when Stokes. we first hit 1996 isn't it yeah and he goes up to her and he's, he's actually comes across as quite creepy then but yeah. it's like to my mind i was like oh that's just terry gilliam being terry gilliam you know i kind of just dismissed it because part of the bait and switch of this film isn't just about the misdirection of the the the, the writing it's also about the misdirection of the fact it's a terry gilliam film yeah They're like am i expecting weirdos well i suppose i'm well, all right i'll just let that one slide Especially when it's cemented in later when Bruce Willis is staring at that pit and painting on the ceiling above his bed and then all of the panel like pop up, very Terry, oh. Terry Gilliam-esque singing Blueberry Hill, but yeah. out of tune, out of key. Yeah. yeah like, know they they know the song, but they don't know the music. But that's why I said that it's like they're robots that are trying desperately to be yeah. like AI or something. And it's so, in that sense, it could be well ahead of its time, but... um yeah, it's the, and they say the line where you're under sedation, you told us that you love the music of the 20th century. So, happy birthday! <laughs> happy birthday to you! You know, like, yeah, uh, that's not it. Say, so, um, and I promise you, I'll never try and sing again on your podcast. <laughs> I mean, that was actually me trying to sing in tune. So, good lord. Um, but talking <laughs> of weirdos and everything, I just thought like Pitt was so in his element because yeah. you know, like, how he can be kind of weird and flip out in seven yeah this was just him just with the reins off you know i bet you he was having such a brilliant time especially in those scenes in the um in the institution where he's jumping around on the beds flipping the, oh, the way he rolls across that guy on his bed <laughs> and the way he's constantly getting the guy out of his armchair it's just like when he's causing the distraction he still <laughs> finds time to stop to shoo the guy out of his chair yeah. it's just like an absolutely crazy performance and i, I just bet he absolutely loved playing goings because yeah. he would the whole finger thing and of course he had that weird thing with the eye wasn't it where he had yeah. to you know like a contact lens which was too big or something where he was Jones. what hey look here this here's james now do me a favor would you show him around tell him the tv rules show him the games and stuff okay how much are you gonna pay me how much i'd be doing your job 
$5,000, my man. That enough? $5,000? I'll wire a check to your account as usual. $5,000. $5,000. $5,000. I'll give him the deluxe mental hospital tool. My man. Uh, get around, get around. It makes him feel good. Yeah, yeah, you're the prisoners. No, no you're no, the guards. Now you got it. Now right, you got right, it. Right, right. Okay, okay. It's all in good fun. All in good fun. Here's some games here. And there's... Get out! Get out! He's in my chair. Games. Games. Here's some games. Games that want to get out. <clears throat> See? More games. Games, they vegetize it. <clears throat> See? Yeah. If you play the games, you're voluntarily taking a tranquilizer. I guess they give you some chemical restraints, huh? Drugs! What did they give you? Thorazine? Haldol? How much? How much? Learn your drugs. Know your doses. It's elementary. I need to make a telephone call. Telephone call? A telephone call? That's communication with the outside world, doctors. Discretion. Ah, uh, Hey, all of these nuts could just make phone calls. They could spread insanity oozing through telephone cables, oozing to the ears of all these poor, sane people, infecting them. Wackos everywhere, plague of madness. Come on, let's go. In fact, very few people. Very few of us here are actually mentally ill. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're crazy as a loon. But that's not why you're here. That's not why you're here. That's not why you're here. You're here because of the system. And all, to be honest with you, all the crazies are, are just amazing. I mean, I know that's not particularly PC of me to say, but uh, I'm just collectively calling the, the patients in the institution as crazies. Um, who's the guy who approached he's wearing like a, a DJ and he approaches him and he says some a brilliant line about oh it's I was trying to write down what he said but he said it too quickly do you know the guy he's like in a dinner, dinner jacket he's, oh yeah he's the one who tells him that he's a, di a divergent he's mentally divergent or something isn't it and then when he looks down he's got slippers on yeah he's dressed in a full dinner jacket and bow tie yeah. Yeah, um, I couldn't... And the way he puts his head on Bruce Willis's shoulder. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I mean, obviously it's got shades of uh, one flew over the cookie's nest and so forth, but just in... And, and this is what going back to um, where, uh, what's his name, um, was saying that it's not a comedy. I know it's not a comedy, but it does have comedic elements and there, it is incredibly bleak, but it's also, there are some really, really damn funny moments. I mean, we we were smiling and just laughing at that. I um, think, yeah, it's uncomfortable humour, isn't it? Because you're not sure you should be laughing at it because these are all mentally unwell people, but the humour's in there. Like when the um, orderly says that he'll pay Brad Pitt $5,000. Yeah. You know, he'll wire it into his account, like like all the time, like he always does kind of thing. That yeah. whole little bit, and like I say, the bit with the chair. I think most of the comedy is with the Brad Pitt character. When he's in the thing in the office with the army of the 12 monkeys i don't know there, there are some funny lines and some other characters oh there's a great one with the pimp yeah you got it I'm, I'm just trying to find it in my notes here so i don't know if i should say it but i'm gonna say it here just um l l the links beautifully if gory style to him removing his own teeth but then it does lead to the great line from the pimp hey i'm innocent victim in here i was attacked by a cult up horror Fucking crazy dentist! Come on, man, that that really made me lol. And <laughs> <laughs> he's just like in the, you know, tied up in the corner. Um, bearing in mind, I mean, yes, it's it's he's horrible character. He goes in, he's about to stab 
um Madeline Stowe's character uh you know he's 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 horrific but that's all that's the genius of the script writing and the direction to turn something so bleak into something so funny yeah um you are allowed to laugh you know the absurdity of this world the the whole the whole mission is absurd it's it, Cole knows it instinctively um that he's trying to save the world by going back in time but it's already written you know it's not gonna is it gonna yeah, he, knows, he knows he can't change because that's one of the things isn't it it's about you can't change your past and you can't necessarily change your future either because it's not about saving those people because he has that line doesn't he all i see is dead people which yeah. is quite amusing because a couple of years later then he was in the sixth sense where a character called cole saw dead people yeah um but yeah so to him everybody's already dead yeah. um kind of thing and he knows he can't save those people i like that they think they possibly got away with it and then um his friend appears and gives him the gun yeah. and he knows then that he's basically it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah it, that is going back to the whole time loop of it all there is that time loop of if you didn't send cole back Brad Pitt's character wouldn't have got the idea about, and you'd led to believe that it's Brad Pitt within it. But then I imagine Brad Pitt having that idea is what triggered the David Morse character to, yeah, get involved with his father, and yeah. then so you it's create whole, that cyclical time whole, loop. You know the the Terminator arm and chip being discovered by Cyberdyne. You know conundrum, isn't it? The chicken yeah. and the egg. The um, it's basically what they explored in another Bruce Willis film a little bit later with Looper, but not as interestingly for me. Yeah, I think Looper's a fine film, but it's not as interesting as this. Yeah, only I can never ever get. I rewatched that about a year ago, and I can never get away that from that scene. You know the one I'm talking about, where they're being mutilated in the future, yeah. and the injuries are appearing in front of you in real time. I'm just like, man, did they have to write that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and the, to going back into the brilliance of the writing and the acting, just in the pacing of the writing, when Bruce, it dawns on Bruce Willis when he's speaking to Goins at the when he infiltrates that party or whatever, and Goins goes, "Yeah, it was your idea, don't you remember when we were in the institution?" Yeah. Six, and he goes, "Oh, oh man, it, no, it was." And he goes, "No, no, it was your idea." That's it. He takes that spark and he adds a whole plan to it. Yeah, um, I love that whole thing where the guards are talking and the things running through about the boy in trapped down in the cave or the mine or whatever it is yeah. i love that whole thing about you know i hear they're going to send a monkey down with an infrared camera yeah, and, yeah. and they got the and line, a sandwich uh, yeah and the guys and a bit later the guy's like i bet that monkey's going to eat that sandwich <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is funny um and that is that gillian little spark in there as well. again i like how they pepper monkeys throughout as well yeah time loop so you get the woody woodpecker time loop cartoon or time tunnel cartoon whatever it is you've got them watching monkey business with the marx brothers coming up on tv you've got a monkey being sent down into the mind to look for the boy and all that sort of stuff they pepper monkeys throughout as well i think and it's all a red herring yeah it's all it's all like it's as much it's as much real as the spray painted monkeys on the on the walls they're just literally in red as well um well, even the... like when you think he's killed madeline stowe's character yeah because they say they found a body in the woods yeah. yeah and they think it's hers kind of thinking like well shit he was in the woods with her you got that little misdirect as well 
yeah i mean this is this is sometimes things happen by accident i don't think this happened by accident by the way but i just noted that there were three writers on this film obviously it was directed by gilliam but chris marker david webb peoples and janet peoples well, Chris Marker is the original idea, isn't it? The, the original guy, yeah, from Legetti. So Legetti, because um, that's the... If I remember Legetti right, it's people who witnessed their own deaths, isn't it? Who, would, who had the... Who got sent back? I, yeah, isn't that the thing with Legetti? I think it's... Because it's thing, not the full 12 Monkeys thing in Legetti, is it? It's just they took... Part of an, I may be misremembering Legetti. Like I say, it's been a long time since I've actually seen it's, it. It's World War Three, and it uses actually shots from World War Two France, where it was devastating. That's right. Um, and then that's and then it's with really haunting music and so forth. And it's people that have got a remarkable connection to some moment in time yeah. that allows them to. It's kind of alluded to in this, where because of course Cole's moment in time is where he sees himself being shot. That's yeah. like it's almost like a checkpoint in time for him. Um, although it's not explicitly said in this film, and that's what it, I assume it's alluding to. Um, and of course, he's got this this love for this character that also uh, kind of like acts as a conduit. And interestingly, she says a line about like this is how I remember you. Do you remember when? Yeah, they, she puts the long hair and the moustache on him, and she says, "So it's like this is what I'm saying about it being a human experience rather than it is science fiction. It's brilliant science fiction, but it's it's philosophical as well because it's about the the mind and links of the mind being able to travel through time, um, almost forward and back at the same time. Madeline Stowe's character knew knew Cole along; they had like a soul connection across yeah. time." Um, and then one of the big divergences between Lajati and 12 Monkeys is that people that are in the far future um, also play a part towards the end of Lajati, where they, they basically uh, manage to reach back in time to um, the characters of our near future to be able to help them. Um, but it's only made possible because of the sacrifice of the top coal type character in it. Yeah, that's right. Um, but... And yeah, I just I just made note of the fact that there's three writers on here, and it's rare to have a film that's so coherently written and very tightly written and tonally, tonally like consistent throughout the film when you've got three writers on it, yeah, and then a very powerful auteur as well. I said, especially when two of them are they're a couple, aren't they? The Peoples, yeah, yeah. if I remember rightly. Um, because he wrote, David Peebles wrote Blade Runner, didn't he? Or was one of the writers on Blade Runner, if I'm remembering rightly. I might be wrong. Check. I'm, I'm uh, oh, yes, no, you're right. Um, so, um, Unforgiven. That's go. right, because he wrote that when it was going to be for Dustin Hoffman, back when it was around the time he did Little Big Man. And then that yeah. sat undeveloped for years until Clint Eastwood picked it up. And then Blade Runner, you're right. Um, as David Peebles. And then twelve monkeys. Um, I mean, that's quite but, a bleak series of films, and <laughs> yeah, and you can see how he leans into the dystopian style yeah. Um, writing. Well, yeah, um, even Unforgiven's a pretty dystopian film. It's just a dystopian western. But talking, here's here's a lovely bit of dialogue. Um, so it's interesting juxtaposition with the 1990s board of scientists, where Cole's whole ex- explanation scene 
has like to me like real terminator vibes and um it's great tying back to the opening where we have that text that appears on the screen um because he says the present the past can't help you it's already happened yeah and it goes back to what you said like all i see is dead people around me it's it's like he's going through a script that's been written for him the motions which is ironic of course because it's a film um and nice little lines in here like dr Rayleigh's, i feel i know you from somewhere which is of course, we mentioned later, she goes, this is how I remember you. So she fully becomes conscious of her connection to him. That's it, because when she discovers him in the picture, you assume that's where she knows him from. Yeah. But then that whole, this is how I remember you later, throws doubt on that. So like you say, are they connected through a dream? Or And I like that there aren't, now you'd get a brief flash of where that idea comes from. Yeah. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be enough for it to be just a line of dialogue for you line to go of off. Of it. That's what I like about this film is it stays with you for ages afterwards. Because I was really glad we were talking about this tonight because <laughs> this is the mark of a good film because it gets the the viewer, the spectator, to do some work. Yeah, and this is going back to what you were saying about your friend, the very intelligent friend from back when you were at school. Um, how acquaintance. Acquaintance. <laughs> I suppose you're a friend now. She would have been a friend if she got twelve monkeys, but well, she, I mean, it's a benchmark. Um, you've got to get you. You've got to respect the audience enough to do some work. Yeah, you know, um, and this allows you to have a, the debate within your head of could she? Because could, she's obsessed with this. What, what is it? Is it called the Cassandra effect? Where yeah, um, you know, you are you are you have the mental um framework in your head that you feel that you can you know what the future is but you're powerless to tell anyone about it right and maybe she's become so obsessed with this that she's got it and she's subconsciously seen his picture or someone that looks like him in a photo and you know made it up in her head but we cannot deny about everything else like uh you know the gun being handed to him at the end and the the telephone call and it's one of those where guys, you just got to watch this movie, right? But like, I do love that bit where they're like, "We got your telephone call," which I'm assuming is something different. That's that's a change, yeah, for him to appear with the gun because he's like, "What the phone call I made five minutes ago is like five minutes for you." Yeah, and if only they'd have found out about this earlier. Yeah, you know, it implies that they'd only after they'd sent him, they'd he had changed the course of the future. Because it was after he'd been sent back and he'd removed the tooth. Because if it had been before, they'd have just pulled him back straight yeah. away. And they said it's it's just now that we've discovered this. Um because of course the the opening of the film where he dies is before the if we just jump to the end, that penultimate scene where what's her name? Doctor or oh, I'm just Catherine. Uh um Doctor. Um Catherine Rayleigh. No, it's one of the scientists. Oh, Jones. Jones, that's it. I should have known that. Christ. Sorry. Dr. Jones, of course. I just made up the doctor bit. But the one who's on the plane with him at the end. I'm in insurance. Yeah. Um, and it's is it that he made that happen? Was it always going to happen? Because it, presumably it's after, it's after his time loop has been closed anyway. So, of yeah. course, this is new for us. And going back into that 
I mean, if I just say what I said for like my closing notes, it seems appropriate to say it now. Um, I said it was offbeat but sincere. I said it was bleak but funny. It was clever but human. It was tragic but hopeful. What a mix. You know, like it is tragic. We know that millions of people are going to die because that incredibly powerful pathogen has been released, right? Billions. Billions, right? Um, But it's hopeful in the fact that Jones has been sent back. She's an insurance, which implies that I'm here now, an insurance policy that's going to pay out. I'm going to, I'm going to at least lessen this situation. Um, yeah, because I was the first time I, or the first couple of times I watched it, I didn't get, and obviously there wasn't internet forums to go on to, you know, do end and explained. I assumed that was her in 1996, not future her back. Yeah. If that makes sense. And and maybe like she aged really well in the 40 odd years or whatever it was for 30 years for cold. But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it was maybe somehow that the people in the future had had gone back to her and got a message to her, you know, through a traveler. But I mean, it's one of those where it makes you do the work as the viewer, you know, um, and it's so tightly written and it's perfectly fine to accept that. I think Um, it works both ways. I think it works on the one hand the irony that she was sat next to the guy in the time and didn't know it or that yes she has gone back and like you say it is going to lessen i think because you get the feeling that there's well there's plenty of people back because they pass the guy on the escalator as well don't they yeah yeah and yeah exactly see i've got no choice but to give you this gun exactly um Um, i do love as well sort of while we're around the ending how he dies in Madeline Stowe's arms and then she starts looking around the crowd for him as a boy. Yeah. And then makes eye contact with him. And then she's kind of, there's a relief to her. She smiles like, you know, he's died, but he's alive. Yeah. Not that I've ever read it or seen it, but I gather that's kind of similar to the premise of the time traveler's wife, where you've got, you know, this relationship that is actually across generations, across time where, Similar to that, and there's a connection of souls rather than of people of the same age. But yeah, I um, and I think that smile is that maybe it will be different this time. Yeah, like you know, each time they do the loop, maybe rather than it being a continuous closing loop, maybe each time there's a hope that something slightly different is going to change it. And that hope is crucial because, like I said before, it's the sense that time travel in this film isn't a scientific process. I mean, there is a degree of like, because there's a scene where it's kind of like shot through a cannon or something, but it's not a scientific process. It's more of a human experience. Um, yeah, because the whole time travel thing where you're pretty much vacuum packed and then just like sucked into a tube. Yeah. Kind of things, right? Um, I'm going to, like, fair warning, I'm going to do spoilers for Brazil. Because Brazil has a bleak ending that's actually, when you think about it, kind of happy. Because he's just, all right, he's been captured, he's been tortured, but he's now in a mental state where he's living in a caravan in the middle of nowhere with Kim Griss' character. And with this, it's a bleaker ending. It's not, the only happiness you've got is that he's finally been set free from this tortured life he's had, but then you get that hopefulness, like I say, in the way she looks at him as a boy and smiles, and that it ends on that boy's eyes watching the plane fly. Which, if you read it as that's Jones from the future minimising 
potentially minimizing the impact there's there's a certain element of sadness like i say it's an incredibly sad ending but it's also there is that thing of hope in it so it's not you know what in a funny way the last film we talked about was alien 3 is yeah. this not tonally exactly the same as the end yeah of that? yeah very much so you know um, and I just wondered, actually, as I know it was written by Chris Marker partly as well, but I wonder if the bit at the end with on on Cole's eyes as a boy looking up um, was a bit of an homage to La Jetie itself, because um, you know I said before about it being made up entirely of still images. Yeah, what image that's moving? Do you remember what it is? Can you can you recall what that is? I can't. Sorry. It's where her eyes. She wakes up in the morning and her eyes open. And it's the one bit of moving image in the film. And of course, that we end this film with these eyes watching this plane go. Uh, I, I imagine that was deliberate. I imagine there's a deliberate taking of the jetty, and that's why he got a writing credit on this one as well. Um, but the um the the ending of this film, I've got to say, like I love the jetty. I'm sure you can tell from the way I've I've kind of like gushed over it. And I tell you, but my my film study students, when I show them these short films, we've got to show them. They're 17, and a number of them. And there's one boy in particular I can't mention his name, but I showed it to them. And sometimes I get, oh god, that was you know I don't want to ever watch that again. And this one guy who was just he just came out with his jaws open and just went, my god, that was brilliant. And I just went, yeah, there's hope for this next year. You know, brilliant. I mean, I, I do have the fortunate, the fortune to be able to teach some students who really genuinely love the, the art and the craft. Um, but the ending of La Jetie is not as good as the ending of this film. Yeah. I don't think. Um, I think the way that Gillian directed this and it was edited and it was acted. Um, and actually with the bit with Jones in the plane saying I'm the insurance policy as well. Um, I mean, it could have ended before then, to be honest, but this the ending of this, it, this the ending of La Jetie just seems very abrupt. Um, yeah. Just to be a bit... I suppose there is potentially a world where it ends on Madeline Stowe locking eyes with child Cole and smiling. Mm. Um, but I love as well, again, jumping all over the place, I apologise. Well, that's after, the nature After the panel got... sung Blueberry Hill to him. Yeah, and then he tuck, gets tucked up in the bed again, and he's got bears on the bed sheet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a lovely little detail. Um, jumping all over the place. I mean, it's just natural with this kind of film because that's the nature of the film and the experience that of jumping around is exactly what Cole would have had. But um, I also really like the bit where, and again, tying into that bleak humour, we're sending you back to 1996, right on the money. And they send him back and he's straight into the trenches of World War One. Yeah. <laughs> it's just um, and then of course, then it then it does another hard cut to Dr. Riley giving her lecture on apparent time travel, including Cole's friend from the trenches. And I just went, that's such great sci-fi. It's like to me it, again, that's a really nicely humorous bit as well, where she's talking about a French soldier who couldn't speak French and all of a sudden could speak fluent English. Yeah. Totally. And it's just, it's like... But we have the knowledge that he's an American who's been sent back in time. He was never a French soldier. Precisely. Um, and we've read those books, or, you know, like you must have read them like I did as a kid, of these weird tales of the unexplained, of these kind of people who appeared in the Middle Ages who were just talking and and you go, could it, could it be, could it be, you know? Um, and or it's Nicholas like... Page, Nicholas Cage appearing in old photos. Yeah, right. Um, but... 
it's kind of Twilight Zone. I actually wrote it's more like um, The Outer Limits. Yeah. Just because The Outer Limits tended to be more tragic, didn't it? It tended to be more, but not even bittersweet. It just tended to be like almost nasty endings at the end of the, the, mod, the modern version of The Outer Limits. Um, but it's just such tragedy. Um, yeah, because I think where Brazil is like a dystopian nightmare future of bureaucracy, this is almost a nightmare dystopian future of sanity. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like that. That both the... are like anxiety dreams put on film, because it is that thing of you know, like in Brazil fighting bureaucracy in a no-win kind of thing, and with this, it's you know proving you're sane with massively un- in, uh, unsane things to say. And almost like that insanity, they've they've discovered that's the key to time travel. Uh, yeah. Like, Because there's a reason that coal is so suitable, otherwise they just send anyone back. Well, they go back. But they, yeah. obviously they, there's a reason why coal is so suitable, and there must be something about his mental state. He's got strength of mind, but he's also susceptible to certain things. And Because I like how Madeline Stowe's heart to feel slightly unhinged yeah like when christopher maloney rings her and says you know i've just got the ballistic results back the bullet you claimed you pulled out of this guy's leg is an antique yeah and then she's like you know that can't be kind of thing wasn't that in the trailer uh she's the line in the trailer is the when she says to him you had a bullet from world war one in your leg how did it get there yeah because that line always stuck out for me from the trailer and brad pitts were all monkeys yeah to, to the point where every so often i will still quote that line like if i'm at the zoo with the kids and we're at the monkey <laughs> cage i will turn to the kids and go we're all because i think the oh. line's slightly different in the trailer to what it is in the film when you, when they're going out for the in the morning do you give them their key like monkey monkey <laughs> monkey like <laughs> <laughs> and that weird kind of Jeffrey Goins look in your eye and it's run away. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's, I, I love Cole wanting to stay in 1996 as well when he thinks he is insane and wants to be sane. I love his line as well about, you know, maybe I am insane and you're my insanity. Yeah. When he says that to the panel. And, the- and you've got that, you've got that, that brilliant character that's the voice that you never see in the future, the, who it's from, but then you see the, the kind of hobo character in our time who starts talking to, he's, pulled, he's got his teeth out, hasn't he? Yeah. And then Madeline Stowe's character, Dr. Riley, goes to f- speak to him again and he acts like she's crazy. Yeah. Um, so there's such a, dis- you know, we can never quite figure out, because um, the Cole character says, are you just a voice in my head? And of course, later in the film, at the very end, he keeps hearing the voice and like other characters are coming up to him and going, get away from me or whatever. Um, so it's never quite, tr- never quite explained to us whether or not that voice is, is a, a, a ghost or an echo of his someone who was with him or it's a really brilliant plot device actually yeah uh, th- 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 it just no matter how how much locked in you think you understand what's going on there are those little peppered in moments that just make you question it yeah and leaves it ambiguous 
I see. Um, this is feels very much like a sci-fi version of those seventies paranoid thrillers, like Three Days of the Condor, Parallax View, that sort of thing. Yeah, those those kind of films that they don't really make anymore, with the exception of like Captain America: The Winter Soldier, had that yeah. feel of it, but not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and the you know, but just, you know, in a, in a comic book style, you don't really get the sort of bleak, you know, us against the world kind of thing. No, um, going back into that sense of um, is it true? Is it not? I mean, you mentioned before about the the bit about the boy down the well, but the first mention that we've got of him knowing what happened was where Cole is reintroduced and he abducts um, yeah. Dr. Riley. Um, and it's just brilliantly acted. It, you, you genuinely feel like she's terrified and he's he's like, he could be dangerous. Like he obviously doesn't want to hurt her. He wants her help. And he says the line, I know you said you'd help me, but I know you didn't mean this, but this is the help I need. Um, really brilliantly written. And then there's the key moment where he just says, never cry wolf. Yeah, and it's like a throwaway line at the moment, but then of course it comes back later, um, and then just when we think, "Oh man, that's the that's the icing on the cake," he know, he was from the future, and then he says to her, but obviously to us, "Well, maybe I saw this in a TV show, and the kids saw the same TV show, and he just acted it out, and I'm confusing things. Maybe you know, yeah. And you're like, yeah. Damn, you're right. Well, I love that whole thing about." You know, that's the reason his dad told him you never cry wolf. And this is a guy who throughout the film is telling the truth and nobody's believing him because it sounds insane. Yeah. Yeah. The the irony there is just off the chart, isn't it? Again, it's a lovely little bit that runs through it, a little juxtaposition to, you know, the lesson and the reality kind of thing. You could almost 500 days of summer of, you know, the expectation, the reality. Yeah, and you mentioned before about the scene of when, um, when Cole's returned because he's constantly being snapped back to the, yeah. the future and the blueberry hill. Um, it's just so great with the fine art above his head and the weird scientists all around him. It, it's just like totally out of Brazil. It's just so weird. Um, yeah, and... that's probably the most Gilliam Gilliam bit. Yeah, of that and the the the, the orb in front of his face yeah. with all the screens on it where he can see his face. Um, and I thought that the back and forwards through time could be so messy but this to me the script is so well written it's just perfect for the narrative and it's really no mean feat considering how how tight Ledger T um, was um, when Ledger T was only 30 minutes long and actually felt very well self-contained and this yeah. film is over two hours to, to not stre- it doesn't feel stretched out at all it actually feels this is the natural length for this story but I've seen it naturally in thirty in thirty minutes. So, yeah, um, I I like with the time travel thing that it is just you're put in a big fucking vacuum pack thing and then sucked off into a tube. That's hello? kind of worse than I meant it to. But then, uh, just any the mundane, children listening? But, uh, but then the thing of him going up to like you know the world above the post virus world, it goes through like this really sci fi tunnel that looks like it you know bits and spin and you travel back in time sorry i, I just can't get out of my head what you just said there <laughs> i can have to move on tell me something like 
I know you're trying your hardest to visualise something else. Talk about bears or lions or something. <laughs> Roaring. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the whole misdirect of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. Yeah. What they did was they released all the animals. Yeah. I remember like watching the film. The this is what I remember about watching the film for the first time is like being quite annoyed because I'd been so like, yeah, I'm getting this film. We're getting there, the villains, and they're going to catch them. And blah, blah, blah. and then of course they just released the monkeys uh, or the animals, and there's the the um, elephants charging down the street, which must have been the amazing giraffes going across the bridge yeah. to to try and organise that. And I remember at the time feeling kind of annoyed, like shortchanged. And then when it's got the real villain in the airport being utterly terrified by him, because as you've mentioned before, um, David Morse, just amazing actor at this. Yeah. And actually just going, oh my God, that that really was the best move. And I got that even as a 14-year-old. Again, throwing it back to The Rock, another great David Morse performance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like, because everything tells you Brad Pitt's your villain. You get the misdirect of the mismemory of him as a boy seeing Brad Pitt run past and telling him to watch it. Yeah. And Brad Pitt, when you see him in 96, has got the ponytail. He's twitchy. The, pe- the three people in the shop, Matt Ross and the other two, say, like, you know, he was way too extreme for us. We just wanted to do leafleting and this sort of thing. Yeah. Everything he wanted to do was counterproductive. And then before they're going out for that night when he walks off the one way and he turns to the other guy and he's like, you know where to be, what to do kind of thing. And he's like, he's like, you're the man or whatever that exchange is. Everything's building up to him. And even in kidnapping his dad. Yeah. Well, the whole film is called the 12 monkeys. So, you know, the whole point is. Because again, that threat of Madeline Stowe ringing his dad to tell him that he's going to release a virus. So he cans the, code that you need to do it to david morse yeah so so that brad pitt couldn't get it from one person he gave it to david morse so you needed the two of them kind of thing and then david morse could then that's what gave david morse the access to the yeah right and the the whole i mean like we said the film is called 12 monkeys the theme tune to the film with the weird accordion sound is the motif for brad pitt's character um, it is one of those films, if you think about it, if you'd done nothing, it would have sorted itself out. Hmm. If you'd not sent him back, Madeline Stowe wouldn't have done what she did. He wouldn't have planted the idea in Brad Pitt's head. You wouldn't have had any of that stuff. And that's the irony of it and, and actually the beauty of it. And so it's that's what I'm saying. It's so Shakespearean um, in its... In, in the different characters, like Shakespeare would have... I, I just... I thought, like... If Shakespeare was alive today, he'd watch this and go, "Yeah, I like that. That's the kind of film I would write." If I, yeah, know. I'm doing a lot of I'm doing a lot of assumptions here about Shakespeare, but um, I just think of classic. Um, well, my favourite Shakespeare play is Hamlet and the Great Tragedy, and how he's, but also characters that he has in there, like in in his other works, like Puck or Bottom or so forth, and essentially that's Brad Pitt's character. Just for misdirection and for levity. Um, What's it? If we learned anything from Upstart Crow, I'm pretty sure Shakespeare would claim it was his. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, think... I, I do like, like I say, I do like that. I love how it it all sort of you know fits together with the misdirection. With you don't really get every piece. You know, you 
left to figure a lot of out for yourself, which I miss that in film. Yeah. I miss coming out of a film and being kind of like, what do you think that was? Whereas now yeah, it's kind of like, you know, let's really hammer it home with a flashback. Yeah, part of the part of the cinematic experience for me back in the golden age of coming out of um, the movie theater was you turn to your friend like we we would have turned to each other and gone. So what do you think of that then? And you would have the the walk home or the drive home dissecting it and just in conversation, not over some message boards or something like this. It would just yeah. be a one to one experience where you'd pull it apart, and then you would then go back to your own homes and then you you do it like on your own, and then maybe when you watched it on videotape or whatever at a later time you go oh remember this let's get this it was almost like a process and... yeah and that's not to say there aren't films like that now like inception has an ending that you can take either way you know does it wobble doesn't it wobble kind of thing the pr- difference now is that you can just pop onto youtube and watch it end and explained yeah but you that, it mean, isn't how... necessarily a thing because what i like about people like chris nolan john carpenter terry gilliam is they won't give you a definitive answer John Carpenter, particularly, we talked about it on the Thing episode, yeah. is notorious for saying, yeah, you're right, that's exactly what it is. And then two minutes later in the next interview going, yeah, no, no, it's not that. Yeah, yeah this is true. And you said that before in your other podcast, which is, you know, like with the Thing and so forth, it's just beautiful. But you're talking, we're talking about directors of a bygone era and any who were still making film. Um, you know, you mentioned Inception. Inception's an old film, Nash. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. And um, it's only made by a director who's got such a, a huge draw through the the really brave choices he made at the start of his career to bring in a lot of money um, and being given a massive franchise as well um, with Batman that most filmmakers would not be allowed to be that brave, even if actually there were. And I think yeah. as much as I love Rogue One, um, I, I think that at the time, um, the director, forgive Gareth me. Gareth Edwards. Thank you, Gareth Edwards. I really, really respect Gareth Edwards, I've got to say. Um, I think he is genuinely a very solid filmmaker yeah. and actually someone who, like you and I, he's he's kind of like how I would have liked to have seen myself in an alternate reality had I really like come out of film school and got a good gig in, in movies and so forth. And um, yeah, He's the kind of guy that you're like, shit, I should have pushed just that little bit harder. I don't know, I pushed pretty hard, but... Uh, I might just like go in just yeah. I, I'm not saying you didn't, but there's still that thing in your mind of like just that little bit harder. I could I know, have been I Gareth Edwards editing a movie in the bedroom. I don't have any. I honestly, I say this totally genuinely. I don't have any sense of um, envy over that guy because I no. just really respect him, and I respect he went from monsters to Godzilla to Star Wars. Man, that was an epic journey upwards. Um, but even he had. Um, his wings clipped massively when he hit his in, when he hit Rogue One, didn't he? And he yeah. had to just and actually he took it with great, great um, in his stride, and he didn't throw his toys out of the pram or whatever. Um, no, he still promoted the film was still part of it, even though it had been taken off him. And it, you know, he then did the creator, which I think I haven't seen it, but I get the impression that it is much more in line with a kind of like early Ridley Scott kind of deal where this is a film that he really would have wanted to make and he probably had a little bit more creative freedom on it and also one that would have really pushed the spectator a bit more to have had those questions. Yeah, and for what he did with the money, and we're going off topic, but for what he did with the little money he had, that's always been the impressive thing about Gareth Edwards is what he does Yeah, with like next to nothing. I mean, it's not nothing. It's still more money than 
will probably yeah, arrive. Like monst- but... Monsters had a budget of because I, 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 I used to teach it as a case study, but this is like eight or nine years ago now, and I think it had a budget from oh, what was the production company that did it? They did like Football Factory and Green Street and yeah, I can't British agree. production film. But they had they had a budget of about two and a half million or something, yeah. which I know to us is huge amounts of money, but actually is chump change when it comes to films. Oh, for making a film, yeah, it's yeah, your came budget. And yet, the film he produced was just amazing. Um, but I mean, going back to this, he kind of he reminds me actually uh, of the lost generation. He's the last kind of like bastion of those kind of filmmakers, like Gillian, yeah. who actually are brave enough to to be able to just do their thing and actually be recognised. And actually, I'm really pleased that, because Gilliam had a, a couple of, like, really massive flops or, you know, of course, there's the Don Quixote film that never happened and all these other things. So, but he actually just managed to stick to his guns and make great movies still, yeah. um, including this one. Well, that's what I like about Gilliam. He'd rather not make the movie than have to make the movie somebody else's way. Yeah. Um, like you say, with Don Quixote, the the great Lost in the Manch documentary. Yeah. Um, like even what he had with the Imaginarium of Doctor Panassus with yeah. Heath Ledger He's sadly clearly, dying. Yeah. And having to find a way to complete that film both for Heath and to finish the story. But, but that's that's in the spirit, the old theatrical spirit of the show must go on for yeah. great art and art's sake, and um, it's that's where you've got people who are genuinely invested in in art and art yeah. form and, and let nobody ever tell you and i say this genuinely about video games as well um if they're well made that nobody ever tell you that film is not art because i know i am so biased when i say this film is the greatest of all the art forms yeah um it it combines uh you know just think of what it does it combines um writing uh, with with lighting and painting with light and and photography and acting and costume and set design sound and, and sound design of course so important editing all of these great things collide into one amazing art form um, and people like Terry Gilliam put that on the screen for us and in no better way than I think than in Twelve Monkeys I'm so pleased to be able to have to to talk about this film with you because. Like I've gushed over Alien 3, I really genuinely think that this is one of the best time travel films ever made. Yeah. I, yeah. I said, I said, no, because I mean, when I came sincere. to you, I was suggesting time loop movies like Edge of Tomorrow, that sort of thing. Um, so when you came back with, does it have to be that or can we do 12 Monkeys? I was kind mm-hmm. of, oh, yes, because that's such a G. Because again, you don't think of it as a time loop movie because it is one time loop within the story of the film, whereas the other time loop movies are lots of mini time loops yeah. throughout the film of the same day repeating. Um, but like, yeah, this is one big time loop kind of movie, and I love it for that. Um, sort of, before we do final thoughts on the film and that, obviously there was a TV series that came that was like the film extended over four seasons with expanded as well yeah tell me um, about it i never saw it i only i started to watch it and i was just like not my 12 monkeys yeah. apparently it's a really good series i just you know when you're used to one thing and then you try and watch something else that's the same thing but it's not 
it's kind of like as much as I really like the Watchmen TV series, I know I might be in the minority here, but I really, really like the Watchmen TV series, but it doesn't feel like Watchmen. Yeah. I had the same thing with the High Fidelity TV series, which I actually, once I could get into the groove of it being its own thing, actually really liked it for its own thing as a readaptation of that book rather than because in the first few episodes in particular, they do a lot of the same lines that are in the film that are in the book as well, to be fair. Um, I was kind of, it's just making me wish I was watching the film. And I found that with 12 Monkeys. I was like, it's not, it's not the film. Yeah, it's it's a sci-fi TV series kind of thing, but I don't feel I can say it's bad because I've not seen enough of it. I but just is the case of so many products that are made this this time. I've said about we we really have been in the golden age of really high quality TV, yeah. but also had a lot of misses along the way, partly because of the amount of content that's been produced, because of the necessity to produce content to get people to buy their subscriptions. Yeah, um, and to me, it's a little bit redundant as redundant as saying let's make a 12 episode um show about casablanca you know remaking what would be the point yeah you know 12 monkeys to me was a product of the mid 90s perfectly it's got a great cast it's beautifully written it's beautifully directed it's beautifully shot it's cleverly edited it's really memorable like why 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 do a yeah. TV show off the back Every, of it? Everything you need is in that two-hour runtime. Yeah. It's like just over two hours runtime. Um, and you know what? If you want some additional stuff, go watch Ledger T. Yeah. I so, mean, if, if the TV series gets people to go back and watch the film and Lachetti and, you know, Hamster Factor and all that stuff, awesome. But, and, you know, I discovered films through more recent versions. So I discovered Manhunter because it started playing on TV when Hannibal came out because I was too young when Silence of the Lambs came out to record it and that sort of thing. And I've discovered films because of TV series that they've been readapted to. I've got no issue with, I mean, like one of the greatest sitcoms of all, or, you know, comedy series of all time is MASH, which is based on a film or, you know, came about because of the film kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so, and I, like I say, I've not seen enough of the TV series to be able to comment on it. It just wasn't for me at the time maybe one day i will settle down and watch it i don't think i need it because i don't think anybody in it is going to be as good as bruce willis is or as good as brad pitt is they might be i might be completely wrong but that's my cole that's my jeffrey i gotta say that maybe i am biased and we in teaching we're always warned about unconscious bias um particularly when it comes to things like marking work and actually it's a good idea to mark work where you don't know the kid's name and yeah. so that you don't bring it, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe I'm bringing my unconscious bias to this in part because I, I love the quality of it. And of course I've got an emotional connection to it, having, having it lived with me for the last 20, 25 years or whatever. But as I mentioned before, now that we know, Bruce Willis is still alive, thankfully, but yeah. of course we know the current situation with his deterioration and seeing him doing such great work. Maybe I'm being biased because I look at that and go, no, don't take that away. Yeah. Why Why would you watch something else when you could watch that? You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's it. I think as well, the 90s were very much like the 70s before it. Yeah. 
So it was a really interesting time for film. It was experimental again. The indie movement really came up with Tarantino, to a lesser degree, Kevin Smith, Danny Boyle. Well, David um, Fincher. And David then the, Fincher. The, you know, the, the, the prime time Richard for later, all that sort of thing. Because um, the 80s were very popcorn movies. There were interesting films in the 80s. I'm not dismissing the 80s, but yeah. I think you had the 70s that really pushed away from that musicals Hollywood of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, it was the birth of New Hollywood. That's it. And then you yeah. got that, and then it sort of slipped into that popcorn-y... Again, great 80s films, a lot of 80s films I love. Well, it's the Reagan era, wasn't it? it was, That's you it. Know, and then you get to the 90s, and it becomes experimental again. It's interesting, and then... Well, it's the Gen X period, yeah. It was like, it. you say, the, the neo-noirs and all that. But... Um, and I think we'd get it again now if it wasn't for the fact that everything's so studio-driven now. Well, it's the problem is it's... Stu- it's not it's people who are interested in films, it's people who are interested in money. You've just got to look the, at David Zaslav with Warner Brothers at the moment. It's the platform, man. It's it's the fact it's being streamed. I'd heard, yeah. I'd, I'd learned something recently. content and tax write-offs. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, I read something recently that really surprised me about the model of um, how... If you have content produced on Netflix, I didn't realize this. It's not like Spotify where they get, I don't know, like an eighth of a penny per play. They get a flat rate. Yeah. If it's on there per week. And um, I tell my students about how great films like, say, The Green Mile and Shawshank, which, you know, we love back back in the time. Do you remember when Shawshank would regularly rate as the number one film of all time on the Empire list and things like that? And now, well, thankfully, it hasn't been forgotten. There's still a young audience who, who've who seen it and love it. But I tell them, you know, like, Shawshank would never exist now in the sense that it might have been made, but you'd never know about it because it would have gone onto Netflix. It wouldn't have reached the top 10. And because it wouldn't have reached the top 10, it would have been pulled from Netflix. Yeah. You probably wouldn't have even known it was ever on Netflix. And there's no hard copy of it ever releasing. So talk about the power of word of mouth in the pre-internet days. Yeah. Where now, if you can't get people to interact with it on Twitter or whatever, nobody knows about it. Back then you had the Shawshank Redemption that had people like Mark Mode and Barry Norman in particular in this country shouting about how good it was, a film that came and went in the cinema. That's it. I got the Shawshank Redemption free from a box of cereal. (laughs) A choice of like three or four films you could send off for on video. No way. And it had a Barry Norman quote on the video, so that's why I picked that one. Yeah. Because um, I think it was it that. Is. I know Highlander was definitely one of the other films you could pick. But you had to save up the tokens, then I got my mum to send off for it because it was a 50. Yeah. There's yeah. like a driving licence in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you you nailed it because it had its cinema release, just like Fight Club, didn't do brilliantly, and it was only on, well, in the case of Fight Club, it was the DVD release, but also with, with Shawshank, it was the VHS release, and it was the Saturday rentals, and people would go, what did you watch last weekend? I watched Shawshank, you should watch it. So then, slowly but surely, it grew up, and there's no time for that now. You literally got a week. A week. How is anyone going to... Nobody even talks to each other any longer. How are you going to hear this word of mouth? Yeah. You know? What's it? I mean, you look at how long some things stay on streaming before they're deleted. Like Disney had that purge of wiping out a load of films. And whether they were good films or not is immaterial. The fact that they've been just obliterated because they don't want to have to pay residuals to people. Yeah. So they just tax write them off that way. It's just ridiculous. But 
I mean, we've sort of gone off topic. We could have a whole podcast discussion on the state of no, I think, content I think and how it's given to people. Bringing it back right, I think we're just opining back to the the fact that this is a product of its era and a damn good product it was too. And again, um, uh, back when there was a buzz about things, again you can relating it to the music industry. Remember the days when a song would climb up the charts? Yeah, like you know it'd come in at thirty eight and then peak at two eventually. Yeah. Whereas now it's like if you come in at thirty eight, that's it, you drop. Yeah. It's a bit like being born at thirty eight. Forget it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of like yeah. you get it with films as well. Films used to tour around, and I get that. On the one hand, if you really wanted to see Apocalypse Now, but you had to wait for it to come to your town because that's how the release system worked. It wasn't nationwide; it was area by area kind of thing. I get that there was that frustration there, but at the same time, there was a certain buzz and excitement about that as well. And I've got to say that, um, kind of in summary, and as I've mentioned before, it was so great to see Bruce Willis at the peak of his career, really, um, doing such great work that really pushed him and showed us that he could do it. And he was great in, and to be honest with you, I've taught Pulp Fiction so many times, he's brilliant in Pulp Fiction as yeah. well. Um, but also so great to see that Gilliam made this because I really cannot think of a better fit for this film. I think no, he really... Could you imagine it in anybody else's hands? No, I think he took the soul of this film and he just put it onto celluloid and put it on the screen for us and, and what a wonderful job he did. Yeah, because I love that because you often look at a role, say, for example, Indiana Jones. I can't imagine anybody else playing that role but Harrison Ford. Or directing it. Yeah. And I we say this, I know that's a loaded thing, but, and we're going to go well off topic, but it's it's there's certain there's a certain what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, not integrity. There's a certain um, truthfulness that certain groups of people, creatives coming together have. It's like lightning in a bottle, I suppose. Yeah. Would be it. Well, the and thing this... with Indiana Jones in particular, and you just look at the most recent one that wasn't Spielberg, wasn't Lucas behind it, yeah. and how different that feels to those other four. Whether you like King Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls or not, it still has that Spielberg thing. Because the thing I've always liked about, again, we're off topic with Gideon, but the thing I've always liked about Spielberg is that he knows how to make you feel yeah. as you experience a film, not just visually take it in kind of thing. He, he knows how to tap into that feel of adventure or whatever the topic is he does. Yeah. Particularly in his early stuff, like the 80s and the 90s stuff. But differently, and this is what ties back into what I was saying before about this is a science fiction film, but it's not about the science of time travel. It's not like we need dilithium crystals for the warp core or something like that. It's about the emotional connection across time. And basically it revolves around love. Yeah. It's about love. That's what that's what the bridge is. You put them into a tube, and what did what was the phrase you used? Don't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, I'd argue that this is a sci-fi film by circumstance, not by necessity or story. Yeah, it's like the plot. The plot demands that they time travel, yeah. so then they don't even explain it. It just happens. But um, and that's about feeling, you know, the greatest of all. And sorry to be soppy, but that's what it is. Yeah, uh, and you that ties into exactly what you said is that. These great directors are ones. Art is a human, is a, a distillation of the human experience. And the greatest of all human experiences is love, right? Yeah. And 
the greatest directors are the ones that allow you. Maybe it's Michael Curtiz with Casablanca. Maybe it's Steven Spielberg with that wonderful scene in Jaws when he's with his Brody's with his family, you know, his kid. Yeah. And they're mimicking each other. And it's just pure dad and son just loving each, you know, he loves his son. And you and I can relate to that no end, right? Um, and this is about love, or a doomed love, a tragic love. Happens to be a time travel story. That's the mechanism by which the love plays out. But it's about feeling. It's about being human. And I think that's where, that's really where great directors put coming. It's not about the look or the style, although obviously Gilliam has a look or a style. It's about, it's about being and tapping into the human experience. You can tell people who make films as a passion, not as a career path or a check. Yeah. And that's what's missing a lot now. I mean, a lot of film now is filmed by committee, unless you are still a Spielberg or a Nolan or a Cameron or whatever. Unless you've got that cachet of name. Um, But yeah, sort of ordinarily, I would ask about a sequel to 12 Monkeys. Would you have liked to have seen one? If so, why? But I don't think you would have, because I know I wouldn't. You you guessed correctly. Well then, but let's move so, on. So we move we on. Know. So sort of closing out. Any sort of final thoughts? Anything you feel we missed? Not at all. I think honestly, I think we is a very organic conversation. This one and and um, really just taps into everything we've said before. Um, I just repeat what I said before about it being offbeat but sincere, bleak but funny, clever but human, tragic but hopeful. Um, I just, I, it's, it's really the package for me as a, yeah. as a movie. It's not necessarily, it's not my favourite film of all time, but I really do rate it as one of the greatest science fiction, uh, sorry, time travel films of all time, um, and justifiably so. And uh, really everything. I think I've said everything I really wanted to, other than just to tie off what you were saying before about um, films being made by committee. That's kind of, uh, this is a whole different podcast conversation but yeah. just, just just to say this is what really worries me about the ai when it comes to all forms of art yeah and um i cannot imagine ai making 12 monkeys as well as these guys did it yeah and i'll just leave it, it there you know it'd be a bit like the panel thing in blueberry hill if the yeah. words are right the feeling's wrong that is the perfect analogy but Awesome. Well, cheers for doing this, man. I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the excuse to revisit 12 Monkeys. Like I say, it's one of those films that it's not in your mind, like, I'm going to pop on 12 Monkeys and have a, have a good time. Yeah. But it's such a rewarding watch. And I think that those films are as important as the I just want to chuck on something easy to watch. Oh. I'll pop on Star Wars or whatever your comfort movie is. Well, thank you for your thanks. Um, I kind of teed this one up when we were talking about Alien 3, and I was so pleased that you allowed me to come back as your guest again to talk about this one. Uh, your listeners will probably be pleased to hear that there was only eight pages of notes on this one this time, <laughs> instead of probably the whole book on Alien 3 I had before. Um, this is one of those weird films I found when I was watching it that I took very little notes. It was one of those films that there's so much in it, but you don't even know where to start in putting something yeah. down as notes. Yeah. I just yeah. jotted down key things to, like, you know, spark the memory rather than, like, you know, a dissertation on. <laughs> well, as ever, I hope anyone listening to this feels inspired to go and watch this movie either again or if you've never seen it, um, please do. Oh, just a little I, I hope if you've never seen it. That you... <laughs>
Well, I don't honestly. I don't think that anything we've said spoils it necessarily, because after after all, it starts like the very opening shot is the end shot of the film. You know, it's kind of like right there. But um, a, sp- a special shout out to um, an old uni friend of mine. His name's James Newby, and he he uh, was a uni friend of mine from Nottingham, although he lives in Cornwall, uh, Newquay Way. And um, I know that this is one of his most favourite films of all time. So if if James, if you're listening to this and you get to uh, to this point of the podcast know that um in part i suggested this one for you um but we used to watch this at, at university endlessly as well because it is a cerebral film um but it's a very human film as well that's it and a shout out to the empire crew of 1996 for getting me excited about a movie that i probably wouldn't touch yeah. otherwise it, it would have passed me by i think unless i caught it on telly cool so, but awesome. Cheers to this, man. I, we will speak again soon about some another film, but yeah. I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me as a guest and um, best wishes for the rest of the year and to all of your listeners too. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Excuse me? It's obscene. All the violence, all the lunacy. Shootings even at airports now. You might say that we're the next endangered species. Human beings. I think you're right, ma'am. I think you hit the nail on the head. Jones is my name. I'm an insurance. was 12 Monkeys. And why not? I'd like to thank Ross for joining me on the episode to talk about the film. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links you need, or head over to the website at hauntednerds.com for the links and all the extra bonus content we put on there, like trailers, featurettes, and more. At the time recording, 12 Monkeys is available in the UK on DVD and Blu-ray from Universal, or on Blu-ray and 4K from Arrow Video. We put a shout on the socials for your thoughts on the film, and we had a couple of replies. Steve Taylor Bryant on the Am Why Not Facebook group said, It's still my favourite movie of all time. I was a huge fan of Gilliam anyway, but this blew me away. Many years later, I had to review the TV show, which I was not looking forward to, but ended up printing an apology to the cast and crew for prejudging it, as it was great in a different way. Piece of Rod on Instagram said, Great movie. Love Brad Pitt in it. I think those freaky roles suit him better than the usual pretty guy parts. First time watching, I felt somewhat confused on what I just saw, but I loved the craziness of it all. Thank you for your comments. If you'd like to let us know your thoughts on the film, you can get involved in the conversation wherever you see this episode posted on our social media channels. You can give us a follow on Threads, Blue Sky and Instagram, or why not join the Am Why Not group over on Facebook. Or if you prefer, you can drop us an email at hauntednerds at gmail.com. Over on our socials, not only be kept up to date with what episodes are coming up and have a chance to contribute to them, but we also post our picks of three great movies to check out each week on Freeview TV. If you fancy joining us, just search Am Why Not Pod on social media, or check out the links in the show notes. If you missed any Am Why Not episodes so far, you can find them on our podcast channel over on Acast, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, or on our website at hauntednerds.com. 
In the meantime, though, we'll be back on Tuesday, the 12th of March, and I'll be joined by... Wait. What's that? Oh, hey. Yeah. What? No, no, no. We escaped for you. It's over. You know, one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about. Yeah. I realise the sequel, it's not quite as good because there's one bit that just goes on a little bit too long with the sequel, right, but we'll, okay. we'll get to that eventually, I'm sure, but... Yes. Dumbass! You sent me back! What? It's Monday the 18th! I don't believe this. I just got out. How could you do this to me? Uh, who's this crazy white girl? Maybe it was a, a bad dream or something. You're right. It is a bad dream. It's a nightmare! This sucks! It sucks the biggest mega balls in the history of shitty ball suckery!